They're all great texts. I always feel like the greatest text in the Bible is the one I'm preaching on at the moment. But uh, this has a special place in my heart. Uh, you know, I put uh, two years of my intense study into the subject of the Lordship of Christ. Uh, years ago, MacArthur came out with a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. It caused a major disruption. I started reading the book and, and I wrote in the, in the side heresy in different places. I read further and I came to say, no, no, no. I think I need an adjustment in my thinking. I've been schooled in certain lines of thinking and uh, I, I rethought through the whole subject. And uh, I came to the conclusion, no lordship, no salvation. Uh, if you don't accept Christ as Lord as well as Savior, you, you don't really have salvation. I think perhaps the strongest text in the whole New Testament on that issue is the one we're studying this morning. I mean, I don't know how you could miss this if you really take it for what it says. Lord, we thank you for your word. Now minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly now. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, the theme of Matthew is Christ the King. We're in chapters 5 through 7, which emphasizes uh, Christ's judicial right to the throne as seen in, in the pronouncements he makes. In Matthew 4, Christ came calling for repentance because he was presenting the kingdom. And the only way into the kingdom is through repentance. I mean, Matthew 4 leads into Matthew 5 through 7. And in Matthew 5 through 7, Christ shows how his kingdom people who are repentant should then live. Those who are truly repentant will be characterized in this way, certainly to, to some degree. Now, uh, as believers, our lives have been changed and we have a different trajectory than we did before. But we still have the flesh, we still have the sin nature, and we struggle. No doubt about that. But the fact of the matter is, we are forever a new creation in Christ. We forever have the Holy Spirit, and that forever changes our lives. There is a, a whole different direction. Well, Christ made a major distinction between the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which was outward and legalistic in nature, in contrast to what I call the inside outrighteousness of his true followers who will enter the kingdom. Uh, notice what he said. Clear contrast. Matthew 5, 20, where he says, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's making a clear distinction between what the religious leaders were all about and what he was all about. You see, repentance is a matter of the heart that affects how one lives. Uh, repentance literally means to have a change of mind. If you've really come to have a change of mind, that's going to demonstrate itself in how you live. The righteousness of the Pharisees was all about an outward facade and hypocritical. The righteousness that will enter the kingdom is based on repentance and is demonstrated in changed lives as illustrated in the kingdom standard presented by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, having finished the formal sermon, if you will, in Matthew 7, 12, Christ then gave a series of four warnings to those who heard his words. It's not enough merely to hear what Christ has to say. One must make a life-changing commitment to Christ that results in living this way. In other words, there has to be repentance. Uh, Christ started his whole ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'd like to take you into the kingdom, but the only way there is through repentance. That's what John the Baptist said. That's what Jesus Christ said. And that's what the apostles said as well. 
Well, uh, note these uh, four uh, emphases at the end of the sermon. Uh, four warnings, uh, two ways, two trees, two professions, that's what we're looking at this morning, and two builders. Last time we saw that Christ warned of false prophets who deceptively come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You see, false prophets have an errant message. They claim they're from God, they claim their message is from God, but they're deceptive. It's not true. The message is all important because if the message is wrong, the spiritual welfare of the people is in jeopardy. You see, people can only get saved by believing the right message, the true gospel. Therefore, it's imperative that false prophets be identified and not followed. False prophets, you see, have a self-agenda, a self-serving agenda. Their appearance is deceptive, but Christ said we would know them by their fruits, by self-oriented fruits. Their fruits are seen in their character, their creed, and their conduct. And Jesus said invariably, good trees bear good fruit, and bad trees bear bad fruit. What comes out in the life reveals the truth about a person. Christ concluded, therefore, therefore by their fruits, you will know them. This principle is universal. Now, ultimately, while we are fruit inspectors, as I emphasized last time, God alone is the ultimate judge. Uh, We're merely fruit inspectors, and uh, we leave final judgment to God. Well, building on the reality that the fruit of the tree reveals the nature of the tree, that, that is, of the person... Christ now shows that mere profession that is not matched by a changed life is really a lie. We come to Matthew 7, 21 through 23, which has been called the scariest text in all of the Bible. And it's so scary because these people actually think they know the Lord. They actually think they're serving the Lord. Such is the nature of self-deception, religious self-deception. It's a powerful thing. And of course, had they really been honest with themselves, they would have seen that they were really nothing but religious hypocrites, as seen in their practice of lawlessness, which is what Christ says to them. When people live double lives or lives that are not consistent with the truth of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior... As some of the Corinthians seem to have been doing, uh, it's legitimate to ask whether the person has ever truly been regenerated. Do they really know Christ? Does he really live in them? And that's where Paul concludes his uh, book, uh, 2 Corinthians, the second letter here, what we call 2 Corinthians, uh, in chapter 13, verse 5, where he says to them, examine yourselves. Ultimately, God's the one who's going to make the final call, but you have to do this. Nobody can do it for you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, unless indeed, you are disqualified. That's the ultimate test here. Is Jesus Christ in you? Genuine believers have the Spirit of Christ living in them, and that is a life-changing reality. This is the ultimate test. 
Well, today in our text, Christ addresses the issue of a false profession. And false prophets and false professions go together. The one builds on the other. So let's pick it up. Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says here, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Do not be naive. Not all who intensely profess Christ as Lord are saved. These people are emphatic about it. They call Jesus not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. It's repeated for emphasis. They're really into it emotionally. They, came, they come off as the most sold out. They got their hands up in supposed worship. They're screaming and shouting. They carry on with passion. Emphasizing Jesus is their Lord. Just one problem. Just one problem. It's all a show. It's all a show. They say the right thing, but it's not real in their hearts. They say the right thing, but Jesus is not really their Lord, which is the whole issue here. It's not enough to profess Jesus as Lord. It must be real in the heart. The difference is made in the heart. The oldest creed in the Christian church is Jesus is Lord. It's a matter of true faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a works. You believe it. You accept it. You have a change of mind that recognizes him for who he is as Lord and Savior. We recognize Jesus as Lord God Almighty. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. And it must be personal. First Corinthians, uh, Paul stressed this point to them. And he says in first Corinthians 12, three, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, anyone can say it with their lips. That's the point Christ is making here in our study this morning. And many will say it emphatically on Judgment Day, only to have Jesus tell them it's all bogus. He was never their Lord. They were just merely professors who said the right thing. They say the right thing. Saying Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit, and that's key, is to mean it. This is different than an empty profession of faith. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's with the heart that one truly believes and then the mouth tells on the heart. What is in the heart comes out of the mouth. And so he continues on here, quoting really from Joel in the Old Testament. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To call on the name of the Lord is different than merely calling Jesus Lord. Calling on his name is recognition of who he is as Lord. Merely mouthing words means nothing. Anyone can do that. Truly calling on him, that is recognizing him 
as Lord is a matter of the heart, as Paul has just emphasized in Romans 10, 9, and 10. We call John's gospel the gospel of belief. John emphasized believing on Christ some 90 times in the book. The most famous verse in the world is found there, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But throughout the book, John qualifies what he means by believing. It's not merely enough to believe about Jesus. It's not merely enough to profess to believe. It must be personal. And the book builds to the climax of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And then the account of doubting Thomas coming to a full New Testament faith. Thomas had said he would not believe in the risen Lord unless he saw him for himself. Well, a few days later, Christ appeared to Thomas. And here's what happened. Here's how that went down. John 20, 28 and 29, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. This is what it means to believe on Jesus. It's personal recognizes him as Lord God. As Thomas said, my Lord and my God. This is what it means to truly believe. We believe in him as our Savior who died for all of our sins. We believe in him as our Lord God as proven in the resurrection. Faith in Christ as Savior and Lord defines all true believers who are part of God's forever family called the church. Paul uh, reiterated this when he said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, he said, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. All true Christians recognize Jesus as Lord. Their personal Lord and Savior. Now, you can be disobedient to your master. Lord means master. You can, you can be disobedient, for sure. And we all wrestle with this. None of us are totally consistent. But we know who he is. We've recognized him for who he is. We believe it. But not all who call Jesus Lord mean it. Not all professors are truly saved. Some are playing a deadly serious game. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, to Jesus will enter the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, sometimes the Gospels uh, say kingdom of God and sometimes kingdom of heaven. These two phrases are used interchangeably and ultimately refer to the coming messianic kingdom. The idea of kingdom of heaven is the rule of heaven, which is to say the rule of God. But this kingdom rule will be through the Messiah. When Jesus sets up his kingdom on the earth, first for a thousand years which we call the millennial kingdom, which will then transition into the eternal phase of the kingdom. So where are we at here? Uh, here's where we are. I'd like to think we're right here. Right? We were talking about this on the way to church. I, you know, every morning I open, almost every morning, we, you know, we got a bay, bay windows. There's three windows there. And we love our bay window area. Sun comes shining through there. But I open up the curtains and I'll say, perhaps today. And I'll look to see if there's any clouds because he's coming in the clouds, right? Uh, well, there's always clouds somewhere. But anyway, I all, everyone, perhaps today. 
Now look out into the sky, perhaps today. And it's coming someday. I don't see why it can't be today. Perhaps today. But anyway, that's the next event on God's prophetic calendar. Then there's a seven-year tribulation. Then Christ comes, second coming. And then we go into the kingdom. The whole of history is moving towards the kingdom. Uh, this, this is the great goal, to go into the kingdom. And of course, in, uh, at the end of that millennial reign, it merges into the eternal phase of it, the eternal state. The kingdom continues on forever at the, from the second coming of Christ on. But Christ is saying, you know, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, to me is going to enter into this kingdom here. Uh, all God's people ultimately are going into the kingdom. But if, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're not going into the kingdom. So if mere professors aren't going in, who is? Well, Christ says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but rather he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's who's going in. Now we know the New Testament clearly teaches we are not saved by works. We're going to die on that mountain. Uh, we're not going to fudge there at all. We are believers in grace. Grace is the favor of God. That's what saves us. And where do we see the grace of God most prominently in the history of the world? The cross of Jesus Christ. By grace are we saved. By the cross are you saved. We're not saved by anything we do. And that's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace. By the cross. By what Jesus did. That's where our faith is. It's not anything we do. I'm not putting my faith in myself. Well, I know myself way too well. No way. By grace, you've been saved. Through faith, you have to believe. You have to have faith. That not of yourselves. You don't save yourself. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. That's grace. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. It's a good thing or we'd never hear the end of it, right? Man, look what I did. Look what, look, look all the wonderful things about me. Just let me review them with you one more time. Forget it. That would make it hell, not heaven. We don't want that. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. No one can brag on self. We are bragging, right? God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Galatians 6.14. We brag, but not about us. We brag on Jesus. He's everything to us. He is the Savior. Lock, stock, and barrel, 100%. It's all Jesus, all grace, all the time, all the way. So, if we're saved by faith, grace through faith, and not by works... What is Christ saying when he says that those who enter the kingdom will be those who do the will of the Father? Well, Christ is emphasizing the fruit of true repentance and faith. He's emphasizing that a good tree brings forth good fruit. I heard that somewhere before. In fact, I preached that somewhere before, like last Sunday. We're not saved by the fruit. We're saved by faith. But true faith bears good fruit. A.W. Tozer had a way of putting things. And uh, he said, To escape the error of salvation by works, we have fallen into the opposite error of salvation without obedience. 
Obedience isn't legalism. And people go and say that, oh man, you, you hold some kind of form of lordship. So you're, you're insisting on works to save. No, 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 no. We're insisting on a regeneration that changes a person and then demonstrates itself in the fruit of the works. We're not saved by the works. That's the fruit. Obedience isn't legalism. It's a symptom of genuine salvation. The root is faith. The fruit is the works. As the reformers said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves does not remain alone. True repentance consistently in the New Testament, all through the Bible, is expected to show in the life. That's Christ's point. What is the will of the Father in this context? Well, the will of the Father is that people accept the Son. That was the whole issue of Christ's ministry in life. It's like, what are you going to do with Jesus? That's the whole issue. That's the whole, the whole point of his ministry ultimately. Will they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Christ goes on to say in verse 24, Lord willing, next week, barring rapture or something, death, whatever. But verse 24, Therefore who hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man. In John 18, 36, Jesus said he came to bear witness to the truth and then said, quote, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. We respond to him. And in John chapter 1, you know that gospel of belief, it says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his, his name. His name is who he is. And who is he? He's Lord. He's Lord. That's who he is. That's the climax of the Gospel of John. My Lord and my God. That's where he's building, building, building to that ultimate climactic point of emphasis. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. In John chapter 6, Jesus said this. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son, sees him for who he is, and believes in him, may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Doing the will of the Father starts with believing on the Son. It all starts there. And frankly, this believing itself is an act of obedience. What Paul in Romans calls the obedience of faith. Obeying the Father starts with obeying the command to believe on the Son. We got these bookmarkers, if you will, in Romans, right? The beginning of the book and the end of the book. And he starts out in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, saying, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Among all nations for his name. That's what we're, we're trying to bring people to the point where they obey and respond to the gospel. And then at the end of the book, he speaks of the gospel now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God.
To what end? To what end? For obedience to the faith. The gospel is a message of both the person of Christ and the work of Christ, who he is and what he has done to save us. And you can't divorce the one from the other, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. They are welded together forever and ever. Amen. He is Lord God. He is Savior. And the reason he can be Savior is because of who he is. The gospel message demands a response. An obedience of faith response from the heart. Note this reference. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 talking about the second coming of Christ, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. But I want you to really get that. What's their problem? They don't obey the gospel. There's a response of obedience in faith. Not works. We're talking the disposition of the heart. One of the key problems, one of the major errors, is an easy believism gospel, which I believe was one is, which is one of the greatest scourges that has ever come upon the church in the church age. And it's such a scourge because it says you can believe and have eternal life, but it doesn't have to change your life in any way, shape, or form. You can believe the gospel in a passive way that requires no really obedience, an obedient response. You don't need to repent. You don't need to repent. You don't need to accept Christ as Lord. You know, that's optional, and you can do that down the road somewhere if you feel so inclined. So you just supposedly passively accept Jesus as Savior. You get a little fire insurance, which is good to have. But it never has to change your life. No, no, that, that, that's way too radical. No, no, no. Well, turns out that's all bogus. In true conversion, a radical change of mind takes place that is called repentance. And it's a radical life-changing thing. We admit our sin problem. I'm wrong. You're right. We obediently acknowledge Christ as personal Savior and personal Lord. I can't do a thing to save myself. He alone is the Savior. He rose from the dead proving He is Lord, proving He is God Almighty. And I accept that personally. And it's a life-changing reality. Well, John wrote the Gospel of Belief, but he also wrote some other books, right? Four other ones, in fact, right? Gospel of John. Well, we'll start with the first digit here. And then you got 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation, right? Well, John, who wrote the gospel belief, and he definitely knew what he was talking about in writing that gospel belief, right? Yeah, he did. But he also wrote 1 John, which presents a series of tests to distinguish between true faith and bogus faith. Sometimes people want to kind of seem to divorce the gospel belief. And in fact, they just want to kind of parse out little pieces of the gospel of John that fit their theology without looking at the whole book. And then they want to kind of divorce that, it seems to me, from 1 John. But in 1 John, John tells us that one of the tests is the obedience test. 
1 John 2, 3, and 4. Do not clip this out of your Bible. Do not do it. 1 John 2, 3, and 4. Now, by this we know. How do we know? That we know Him. This is how we know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments. Let me ask you. Let me ask you. Was John teaching a work salvation? You could say it stronger. No! The whole gospel of John is a gospel of belief. 90 times believe, 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 believe. Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. John is 100% consistent, as is Jesus. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He says, I know him. I know him. I'm professing. I know him. And does not keep his commandments is a flat out liar. And the truth is not in him. They're liars. They profess to know him. I know him. They got a profession. Yes, we're saved by faith alone, but if the faith is real, it will show in the life we will want to obey Christ. And frankly, we will obey him. Not perfectly, but we will obey him. We will certainly desire to obey him, even if we're inconsistent in the process. And by the way, we are all inconsistent because we're all still in process and none of us are living totally perfectly as we should until we get to glory. Ernest uh, Reisinger says this. Many are comfortable living sinful lives while hiding behind a teaching that is not biblical. Comfortable going to hell on a false teaching. It is one thing to acknowledge that Christians can have carnal outbreaks. It is another thing altogether to teach that someone whose life is predominantly carnal should be considered a Christian. But then he says this. We do not always know who has been born again. Therefore, when speaking of the backslider... Two errors must be avoided. Number one, insisting that he is not a Christian. Number two, insisting that he is a Christian. We do not know and we cannot know. And it is not a sin not to know. End of quote. I would say it might be a sin to claim to know, right? I mean, who are we? We're not the final judge. And you know, when a Christian walks in the flesh, they look a lot like the, an unbeliever. You know why? They're walking in the flesh. That's why. And if you live that way as a lifestyle pattern, it gets to be a major mega issue. Where are we? However, the point Christ is emphatically making here is that those who truly know God will demonstrate that in the life. Not perfectly, but certainly. This is the same point Christ made in verses 17 and 18 where he said that every good tree dogmatically brings forth good fruit and likewise every bad tree brings forth bad fruit. Faith in Christ changes a person. It changes the whole trajectory of their life. Christ is basically saying if your profession hasn't changed your life, you're not saved. De facto. If Christ is merely Lord on the lips... But not in the life, you're not headed for the kingdom. Some who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but it will be those who truly know him as Lord, and it shows in their life, in doing the will of the Father. Charles Spurgeon, you can see him in the fine print there. 
said this, if the, prof- if the professed convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows the Lord's will, but does not mean to attend to it, you are not to pamper his presumptions, but it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. I mean, down deep in the heart of every true believer, we want to obey Christ. We struggle with it and we fail regularly. But we have, you see, this thing called a new nature. We have this reality called the Holy Spirit. And that makes all the difference in the life. We are a new creation in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And Jesus was very consistent with this emphasis. Notice what he goes on to say. We'll get there, Lord willing, eventually. But Matthew 12, 50, Christ says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, is my brother, sister, mother. Who are those in the true spiritual family of Christ? He's not talking physically here. He's talking spiritually. His spiritual family. They are those who do the will of my Father. Does the will of my Father is in the present tense, indicating this is a pattern of life. Lifestyle obedience is what characterizes those who truly know God. Now, I remember years ago, first book I taught through when I, when I got into ministry was the Gospel of John. 36 years ago, we'd have been in John on this Sunday morning. But as I was teaching through John, and, and you know, it's strong emphasis on belief, the Gospel belief. But uh, I remember one dear lady, when I got to John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, said, I just can't understand this, Pastor. You're hammering belief. It's a gospel belief. But it seems like Jesus here is teaching a works salvation. I know that can't be right. But how do I make sense of this? And here's the text that she was wrestling with. Where Jesus says, do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Do you see her consternation? Do you see why she's wrestling with this? You see, on the face of it, it sounds a lot like salvation by works, doesn't it? I mean, if you're just looking at this verse, right? Who's going into the resurrection? Like Those who have done good. Who's going to hell to the resurrection of condemnation? Well, those who have done evil. I can appreciate her struggle. Can't you? I guess not, but I can. (laughs) But I want you to know something. Jesus is very consistent. A hundred percent so. We're saved by faith alone. Yeah, yeah, we are. But it must be the right kind of faith. It must be a life-changing kind of faith. This is a kind of faith that bears good fruit in the life. And hence, will experience the resurrection of life. John Walvoord succinctly says, The principle does not mean that salvation in the kingdom is secured by works. But it does teach that works are the fruits or the evidence which are found in, a, in true disciples. Amen. Note, uh, Christ in saying, my father, strongly implies divine sonship. Having God as his father indicates they share the same nature, a divine nature. When Jesus called God his father, the Jews assumed, correctly so, that Jesus was making himself equal in nature to God the father. 
Notice uh, in John 5, 17, 18, Jesus answered, My father has been working until now, and I've been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Why? Well, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said God was his father, making himself equal with God. They got it. He's saying, I share the very same nature as God the Father. I'm God the Son. We have a triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. All co-equally eternal God. Well, all the way through here, there's a strong emphasis on the Godship of Christ. He is called Lord, Lord. He refers to God as my Father. And he has the power to judge for eternity, as seen in verse 23, which is the prerogative of deity alone. It's this one they dare to name as Lord, Lord, without any heart reality. Verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? One of the most troubling things about this verse is that that little, huge, mega word, many, many. Many are in this category. You understand? These are church people. These are people who claim to be serving the Lord. And they are actively doing so. All kinds of things. These are not fringe people. They're very involved. And their supposed ministry... It's all in the name of Jesus. It's all for Jesus. That's, the, that's their motto. It's all for Jesus. Three times. Did you see it there? Three times. Prophesied in your name. Jesus, all for you. Cast out demons in your name. All for you, Jesus. Done many wonders in your name. It was all by you, Jesus. We did it for you. This is scary, scary stuff. In that day refers to the coming judgment day when they will give account to Jesus. This is not the believer's judgment because the next verse shows these people are truly not believers. Never will the believer here depart from me, from Jesus. We're going to be with him forever. We're not departing from him. There is a judgment for believers in which our works will be evaluated in terms of the reward we will receive. But in view here is the unbelievers' judgment. Once again, in verse 22, we have the emphasis on them saying to Christ, Lord, Lord. The word Lord, uh, Greek kurios, uh, means master. It denotes a superior and consistently uh, denotes one who has authority who is to be obeyed. It was sometimes used as a polite address. Yes, that's true. But when used of the risen Lord, it always denotes his authority as God. Really, you could boil it down. Lord means, when applied to the risen Christ, God master. Jesus says in John 6, 44, what's the expectation of the idea of Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? To call Jesus Lord is to acknowledge his sovereign authority over you. To not obey him, by the way, is a non sequitur. Just like saying, no, Lord, is a contradiction in terms. These people call Jesus God master. And on judgment day, it, it seems here like they will do so in a pleading manner. As if to indicate with passion and sincerity that it's really true. And they seek to make their case. A little late, 
But they seek to make their case by emphasizing all the things they did in Christ's name, which is to say for his sake. Now, I want you to look at this. Zero in on this for a little bit. What do they say? Prophecy. We, we were prophesying in your name. Casting out demons. Signs and wonders. Now, I want to ask you a question at this point. I want you to think about this. What category of Christendom does this characterize, would you say? I'm just thinking with you. What category of Christendom does this uh, characterize? I mean, when's the last time we had a prophecy here at Southview? I know it's been a couple weeks. When's the last time we were casting out demons, had a deliverance service? Signs and wonders. We haven't had a signs and wonders revival for at least three months now. This, my friends, has the charismatic movement written all over it. Now, I'm not saying that there are not believers in the movement, because there are. Many of them are believers. But in truth, I'm talking generally now as, as, a, as a charismatic movement. In relationship to modern Christianity, in my view, this has brought forth more false teachers and more aberrant teaching than any other sect other than outright cults. Massive amounts of people are misled and tragically so. Now they tend to think they're more spiritual. They have more of the Holy Spirit. I'm still waiting for the baptism. No, I'm not. I got that when I accepted Christ. (laughs) But they would see it that way. And they think they're more spiritual because, after all, God supposedly prophetically speaks to them. I mean, you're really spiritual when you're getting direct revelation from God. You see, they they claim to still have the gift of prophecy. And right there is their major downfall. Once you start claiming to have additional revelation outside the Bible, it spells disaster. Really, it spells blasphemy. It spells deception. It spells demonic activity on a high order. And this is most serious. Note the flow here. In Matthew 7, 15, Christ said, Beware of false prophets. And now here in verse 22, he says, Many will claim to have had the gift of prophecy and used it for Christ. To claim prophecy, to claim to be able to prophesy, is really, I think, the gateway error to much false teaching in charismania. One of the greatest problems with the charismatic movement is that it puts little emphasis on knowing, the knowledge of the truth. You see, it's not about studious study. People like me, you know, stuffy, old, worthless, don't know the moving of the spirit, stuck in his office all day long, studying, what in the world, that's not where it's at. It's not about studious study and sound doctrine. That's not the emphasis. What is it about? It's about experiencing God. It's about experience and feelings. And that leads to all kinds of error. There are a few things to note about the gift of prophecy in the Bible. Prophecy always refers to receiving direct revelation from God. That's how it's used in the Bible. True prophets in the Bible, when they spoke in the name of the Lord... We're never wrong. 
Because their message came directly from God and God is never wrong. This is one of the key tests of a prophet. If he's ever wrong. Is he ever wrong? And in the Old Testament, if he ever was wrong, he was to be stoned as a false prophet. There's the test. You might, might want to think twice about saying, I've received a message from God. <laughs> Put the stones away. <laughs> Crazy. Today, many modern day charismatics want to claim there's such a thing as, are you ready for this? Errant prophecy. They, they claim there's still some nuggets of, of truth in it. But there might be some error in the mix too. That's contrary to everything the foundation of the Old Testament says about prophecy. Note a few points about prophecy, which I'll roll through very quickly here. Number one, uh, Peter tied the beginning of New Testament prophecy to the prophetic phenomena in the Old Testament. Uh, This establishes a fundamental continuity between the nature of Old and New Testament prophecy. Hence, the early church judged genuine prophecy according to the Old Testament prophetic standards already in place. Number two, prophecy in the Bible was always a miraculous supernatural event. Number three... New Testament prophets served alongside the apostles in being channels of the mysteries of God. They, along with Christ, laid the revelatory foundation for the church age. A foundation once laid is complete. Uh, Number four. uh, Prophecy was direct uh, direct fresh revelation while teaching and preaching are based on previously existing revelation. Number five. Old Testament prophecy ceased... And the Old Testament canon was complete. In like manner, New Testament prophecy ceased with the apostles and prophets. And the New Testament was, the New Testament canon was complete. Uh, number six, immediately after the apostolic era, the early church fathers put a strong emphasis on apostolic doctrine as found in the New Testament. Rather than heeding prophetic voices. And number seven, the Muratorian document from around A.D. 170 contains the oldest listing of the canonically recognized books of the New Testament. And then this quote from David Farrell, it refers to both apostles and prophets, this document from 170 A.D., stating explicitly that the number of prophets is complete and thereby indicating an end to prophetic expression. Now, I want to review with you a little history lesson. And you know what history teaches us, right? You know what history teaches us. People learn virtually nothing from history. (laughs) Right? I'm going to show you that's true. You see, in the early second century, right after the time of the apostles, the early church faced a, what we might call a prophetic crisis. A movement developed, which was called New Prophecy Movement. Montanism. That's what it's otherwise called. Montanism. Well, the early church grappled with this. This movement took off like crazy. Just like the modern day charismatic movement did. It's exciting. We got new stuff happening here. <laughs> Not just the old Bible. You know that stuff, your book, you got to just labor in all the day and make your brain think over time. No, no, no. We got exciting stuff. God is speaking to us when we get together. Wow, exciting stuff. Just took off like crazy. The early church, it was a major problem. But as the early church dealt with this, they came to see it as heresy. Because it claimed to bring forth new revelation. 
That was why it was called the, the New Prophecy Movement. Thus, the early church labeled Montanism as heresy. And Chrysostom, uh, an early church father in uh, 347 to 407, said, quote, This whole place is very obscure. But why? He says, But the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to by their cessation, being such as used to occur, but no, now no longer take place. Well, after the de demise of Montanism, uh, really the prophetic phenomena largely vanished from the pages of church history until all of a sudden, all of a sudden, in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, there was a supposed outbreak of prophetic activity, new prophetic activity, that gave birth to Pe the Pentecostal movement, which gave birth to the more ecumenical charismatic movement, which gave birth to the vineyard and the signs and wonders movements, which gave birth to the contemporary New Apostolic Reformation Movement. But in truth, all of these new movements just continue to bring forth the old error, namely the claim of additional new prophetic revelation, which all fits under the heading of false prophecy. You see, what's really stirred the followers of Montanus was this showy, new, exciting stuff that's happening. And that's what kind of defines the charismatic movement. Claiming all manner of supernatural phenomena. Not only do they champion supposed prophecy, but also claim to be able to cast out demons. Throwing themselves around in the spiritual realm as they speak arrogantly in reference to demons. By the way, Jude and Peter both address this. Uh, Peter says this, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil, evil of dignitaries. And really in context, he's talking about angelic beings, namely demons. Whereas angels, that is holy angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Many charismatic leaders claim to bind Satan and demons. However, only God can do this. Only he can bind the strong man, as taught by Jesus in Mark 12, 29. When people wildly claim to have power over the devil and demons, we should remember Jude 9, which says that even Michael the archangel dared not revile the devil, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. It's the Lord who puts the devil in his place. I don't care what... <laughs> Wild-eyed, charismatic leader says he's binding the devil. He's deceived. His ego has deceived him. To throw words around wildly, recklessly, and arrogantly in the spiritual realm is a mark of false teachers, not sound Bible teachers. Many on Judgment Day will have claimed to have done this only to find out they never even really knew Christ. And they will claim to have done many wonderful things, done many wonders in Christ's name. They really thought they were doing great things. By the way, the word wonders here is dunamis in the Greek, from which we get our English word dynamite. Uh, literally powers. We were doing powers in your name. Powerful crusades. Powerful things happening. I mean, people falling out unconscious. That's powerful. Not biblical. Not biblical. 
Biblical, the fruit of the Spirit is, are you ready for this? Self-control. Self-control, not just falling wildly unconsciously. You see, the problem is that Satan is a great counterfeiter. A great counterfeiter. Not all miracles are from God. In discussing last day's apostasy and how evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, Paul mentions the occult magicians in Pharaoh's court and how in the last days we will have similar phenomenon on the scene. These magicians had actual spiritual power, but it was from the devil. The New Testament warns of an end-time occultic invasion, the likes of which I think we're witnessing even now. Claiming to be able to prophesy claiming to have a deliverance ministry and claiming to have a signs and wonders ministry is no evidence of salvation. In fact, here Christ uses it as an illustration of false professors who in the end will find out they never even really knew Jesus at all. They were all about an outward show, characteristic of false prophets. Yes, they may have tapped into some kind of spiritual power, but it wasn't from God. By the way, People who don't know their Bible very well are very susceptible to this movement. They are very convincing. You see, they quote enough verses out of context to confuse people. They say, oh, the Bible says... Yeah, but let's look at the context of that, shall we? They come off very emotionally convincing. They spout the name of Jesus without end. And they testify as they tell story upon story. And yet... They can be phony as phony can be. Again, there are some in the movement that are saved, and there are, there are differing degrees of error here, for sure. So I am generalizing. I admit I'm generalizing. But in general, the movement has huge amounts of error because it claims the apostolic sign gifts are still operative when, in fact, they are not. If you think God is giving new revelation. And you are tapping into all kinds of apostolic sign gifts. It gives you a whole different kind of theology than that which you arrive at when you believe the Bible is complete. And that isn't happening anymore. Costi Hinn is the nephew of uh, the famous Benny Hinn. Perhaps you've heard of him. Who claims to be a faith healer and a worker of signs and wonders. Costi used to work for Benny and, and then was gloriously saved. I love Costi. He's been involved in writing two books uh, to refute the movement now. Costi and Anthony Wood co-authored a book called Defining Deception with the subtitle Freeing the Church from the Mystical Miracle Movement. And then Costi wrote, quote, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. Well, in the book Defining Deception, they write, This in no way means that God ceases to do miracles in the church today, but these are not normative or given as signs to confirm the gospel. Yes, God works mightily and miraculously sometimes in answer to prayer and so forth. But the sign gifts in the apostolic age ceased with the apostles. And they say here, experience never defines biblical truth. The truth found in scripture must always define our experience. Well, false teachers specialize in telling stories. They are masterful. I listen to these guys, not, not because I'm interested <laughs> But uh, just to be a little educated. And they are good at telling stories. It's so impressive. They draw you in. Big stories. Miraculous stories. 
But actual Bible teaching in context is mostly nil. Their teaching while claiming all kinds of miraculous stuff is actually very mind-centered and caters to the flesh. What God can do for you. You want to hear this, right? What God can do for you. I mean, it is all about you after all. Your health, your wealth, your prosperity. Let's talk about you and what God, you know, He's kind of like a puppet up there. And if you just learn to, 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 to do the strings and control the, 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 you know, the master here, you can kind of control the puppet and get what you want. It's kind of like magic a little bit, you know. You just have the right faith. You'll get that car you're looking for. Yeah, want a new house? Yeah, but you need to send the money into me. You know, I'm a, I'm, I've got the anointing. You need to send it. So God, God will move if you just trust him. And, please, please. Out of this movement comes things like kingdom now theology, dominion theology, trips to heaven and hell, weird spiritual experiences like being slain in the spirit that has absolutely no scriptural backing whatsoever. Again, when a person buys into extra biblical revelation, you can go anywhere. And it's very dangerous. Well, it's time for me to get to my last point. Verse 23 And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus also has something to say. And he speaks with ultimate authority. As the one who holds a person's eternal destiny in his hands. Indicative of him being God. Jesus on that final day will say to these phony professors... I never knew you. No refers to a deep, intimate, relational knowledge. As Lord, they didn't know Him. They professed it, but it wasn't true. This is the whole context. Relationally, they never knew Jesus. Notice He never knew them. It's not that they were once saved and lost their salvation. Rather, it's that they were never truly saved. They never really knew Christ as Lord, although they professed it loudly. Just like Judas, they lived a lie very convincingly. Lordlessness and lawlessness go together. This is the great issue here. They did not know Jesus as Lord, and it showed in their practice of lawlessness. This is one of the greatest lordship texts in all of the New Testament, and there are many The Lordless Gospel says you can accept Christ as Savior while rejecting Him as Lord. That's totally foreign to Scripture. When a half-truth is presented as the whole truth, it becomes an untruth. You see, the apostles preach the Lordship of Christ. The book of Acts, Savior appears there twice. Lord is mentioned 92 times. In the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord 822 times. Lord Jesus, 22 times. Lord Jesus Christ, 81 times. The word Savior is used only 24 times, and eight of those times it refers to God the Father. All this to say, tremendous emphasis on the Lordship of Christ in the New Testament Scriptures. MacArthur is right. We cannot know Christ any other way than as Lord. Notice the reality of these people. They practiced lawlessness. Now, in theology, we call this antinomianism, which simply means without law. Now it is true we are no longer under the law of Moses, but as true believers we are under, you ready for this? The law of Christ. 
We're under the law of His Lordship. We recognize Him as our God-master, and that changes our lives. Paul refers to unbelievers as, quote, the sons of disobedience. You see, the essence of sin is self-rule. It's capsulized in Isaiah 53, 6, where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We've all gone our own way. This is the essence of sin. And the issue becomes this. Will I rule my life as my own Lord? Or will I bow in submission to the truth of Jesus is Lord? This is the very nature of true repentance involved in saving faith. Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning the common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting to contend earnestly for the faith. And then he says, verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. Wow, isn't that unbelievable? They're under the radar. Who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men. And what do they do? Who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Contending for the faith in this context is a lordship issue. These people claim grace, but they pervert it. They use grace as a license to sin. And in so doing, they deny the lordship of Christ. The rest of the New Testament is consistent with this reality here, what Christ said. Note just a couple of quick references here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Do not be deceived. Now the fornicators, adulterers, adulterers, etc. They're not going in. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. Don't be naive. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. We're saved by faith alone. But it must be the right kind of faith. A true saving faith has the fruit of doing the Father's will as a pattern of life. Spurgeon once again says, Now sirs... Any kind of faith in Christ which does not change your life is the faith of devils and will take you where devils are, but will never take you to heaven. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said, At the day of doom, men will be judged according to their fruits. It will not be said then, Did you believe? But were you doers or talkers only? Only a life-changing kind of faith is a saving faith. Only a faith that truly knows Christ as my Lord and my God, as well as my Savior, is really a saving faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But it's got to be in the heart. It's with the heart that one believes under righteousness. Let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer.